Scripture says, Romans 5, starting in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom was given to us. May God bless the reading of his word. Be seated in God's house this evening. My message tonight is that we are a people who have feet rooted in grace with a head founded in hope. That when our feet are rooted in grace, our head can be founded in hope. Now, sometimes when a scripture is preached, you know, you'll, you'll preach one certain aspect of it. For example, uh, for the first several weeks of January, we've been going to Luke chapter 2 and Simeon. And we've been seeing so many different facets of Simeon. And this, this Sunday, I've got the final facet of Simeon, which is just a different unpacking of it. I think it's going to be the best unpacking that we've seen so far. The same thing occurred here in uh, chapter 5, verse Two, and here's the part that I want to focus on is as it says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, your translation, how many translations says something different there, verse two? What does it say? We boast. How many translations says boast? What's the King James say? King James says rejoice, and I think the, the NIV says boast, and other translations may say a whole host of other things. But here's what the word actually means when it says rejoice or boast. It means that we hold our head high in confident expectation. And I like boast because we're going to kind of go that route for a minute. That we boast, we, we hold our head high about something because uh, we have a confidence on which to stand. Now, how many of you um, have, a, have a favorite team that's going to the Super Bowl or that's going to the playoffs? Okay, who would that team be? Broncos. Who else? Same team, Broncos. Anybody else? Okay, let's take Broncos, for example. So right now your team is Broncos. They're going all the way, and with your coworkers, your family members, you can boast about your team because of what they've done. So you can hold your head a little higher than everybody because their teams have fallen. Their teams have failed. So when it says we boast in the hope of the glory of God, it means that we have a, a I don't want to go the route of arrogance, but a pridefulness, a confidence based on something. Now, when I think of two types of people that hold their head high, you know, one type of people that I, I think of would be a prideful person who boasts in their self, who carries around an, an air of, of arrogance. Uh, when Tyler and I, back in uh, 2008, before uh, Tyler gave birth to Bella, before I went over to um, Afghanistan, we actually had a chance to go visit London. And over in London, the people of England are very, very boastful. And I remember we were on a tour bus, and the tour guide, he said, in England, you need three words to get along with the locals. It's air, hair, and lair. And they say, air, hair, lair. Right? 
This was kind of the, the air they carry about themselves, that boastfulness. Not arrogant. They're really nice people, but they're very uppity on their customs and their tea and things of this nature. So we think about someone who's boastful and prideful. We think of the, the prideful person and their arrogance. But the, the other person I think of who carries themselves very tall and very high is a ballerina. Now think about this for a moment. A ballerina has to have the proper alignment of their stature and posture because the ballerina knows that if their head is in proper alignment, then the rest of their body will flow in proper alignment. I've seen one time this video of Arnold Schwarzenegger. They were taking ballet lessons with him. And is it Franco, the shorter guy? Uh, One of the other bodybuilders. But they were taking ballet lessons so they could be more graceful in their posing. And so they were taking these ballet lessons to teach them how to orient their stature, how to orient their, their body. We know that when the head is in proper alignment, that the rest of the body is going to be aligned also. Matter of fact, when I played football, my dad told me to hit guys in the head. Now, you got to understand, my dad was a linebacker at Gardner-Webb University. He went to Gardner-Webb as a quarterback, and then they said between his uh, freshman and sophomore year, he was too big and mean to be a uh, quarterback, so they made him a linebacker. And he was just like mean, and he would eat, you know, quarterbacks for lunch. But he said, listen, hit them in the head. He said, take your head, put your face mask in their head, because if you can control their head, then the rest of their body will follow. And there's some sense to that. My dad, he was a little crazy, but that's okay. So we know that if you can control the head, you can control the body. So when it says that we boast in the glory of God that means the stature of our head the confidence is based on God's nature now back to the ballerinas we say they have good posture and that they move properly the word comes to mind how they move as graceful right they are very graceful when did it ever occur that unmerited favor grace had something to do with movement. Someone who has unmerited favor in their life. When did it come to occur that someone who has unmerited favor moves properly? I mean, when did that happen in the span of history? Because God is graceful. He's full of grace. I'm not sure about a ballerina. Some of them are a little uppity. But when did it become that that grace had to do with movement? Since when did favor have to do with how someone moves? But maybe it has a lot to do with it. Maybe when someone's head is oriented in the proper position, that the rest of their body flows. So maybe graceful means they've got a good head on their shoulders. Maybe graceful means their head is oriented properly so the rest of their body functions in accord. And maybe it should be the picture of the Christian whose head is founded in God's character so that our movement can be graceful. Maybe our spiritual awkwardness wouldn't look like a fifth grade teenage boy who's just walking around with, you know, knees bigger than his thighs and everything and looking goofy. Maybe if our head was founded in God's nature that our Christianity would be a little more graceful. 
When you start walking in the knowledge of grace, everything else comes in line. When the head is oriented properly, then the rest of our spirituality is oriented properly. As I said, the King James says rejoice. The NIV says boast. But the word picture in the Greek is to hold the head high. And this is, I don't believe I've ever said this before in the history of ministry. But I like here the New Living Translation. Anyone have one of that? All right. Ten years ago, my dad got saved. I went to the Bible bookstore. I said, I need a translation that's easy to read for a, a new believer. And the person gave me a new living translation. Now, since then, it's not been a favorite translation of mine. I prefer ESV, King James, NIV. But here it's good, and this is what it says. The new living translation says that we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Think of that, that, that nature of orientation, of vision. When your head is held high, you're not diminished. You're not ashamed. You're not downtrodden. But you're confident and joyfully looking forward to something. Someone whose uh, head is being held high, they're, they're ready to take on life. They're not, they're not depressed. They're not fixated because of their situation they're excited and they're they're ready to tackle what life has and i think the new living translation does a good job of translating that that we confidently look forward to sharing in the glory of god so here's the picture that we get now in romans 5 1 and 2 therefore having been justified with we have peace with god Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand with our feet. We stand in grace and we confidently look forward with our head to the hope of the glory of God. So once our feet are rooted in grace, then our head can be founded in hope. But we're going to see here that our hope is tied into our feet, which are attached to grace. And it's that grace movement, it's that grace foundation that determines our head. Hope is expectation, trust, and confidence that God will get the glory. It then means that no matter what battle we walk through, no matter what the government does, no matter what the terrorists do, no matter what the president does, God's still going to get the glory. Amen? We hold our heads high because of the glory of God. Secondly, because we know God will get the glory, then we can look forward and even rejoice in every trial that we go through. Because we hope, confident expectation and trust in the glory of God, our head is based on the glory of God and that confident expectation, then we can rejoice in trial. Now, I really didn't spend a lot of time on this last week. Let's unpack this a little more. Hope, according to verses uh, 3 and 4, is not the means to our end. Therefore, it's not hope that gets us through the trial. It's the trial that points us to more hope. So hope is not the means to our end. It's actually the end of our means. It's what God has designed trial to do. God has designed that trial will create hope in you. God has designed that when you walk through a struggle, you're going to come out more hopeful than when you went in 
Hope is not what gets us through a trial. Hope is the outcome of trial. Look what the scripture says. We glory in suffering, knowing that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character hope. So the end of all of our trial is hope. That's the purpose of it. Because all things lead to the glory of God, because our head is founded in the glory of God, then the more trials there are, the more hope that comes about. You know, Bill Palace, we were talking about planting seeds starting Valentine's Day. Go ahead and planting them tomato seeds. Let me tell you what. If you want more of a harvest, you're going to plant more of a seeds. Let me tell you something. If there's going to be more hope in your life, there's going to have to be more trial. Because trial produces hope. So the more trial there is in your life, the more hope will be harvested. Because every time you go through a trial and God comes out the victor, our faith is built up stronger. And a lot of times in our Christian life, we pray for for less trial. We pray for staying out of tribulation. We pray to stay away from persecution. But if tribulation and persecution lead us to hope, and that's our hope and victory in the glory of God, then let's stop being afraid of it. And let's hit them head on. Amen? See, the more trials there are, the more hope that comes about. It's like a pregnant woman who is coming closer and closer to delivery. The more frequent, the more stronger those pains become, the more stronger they become, the closer it means to an expectation of a child. In our own life, the frequency of tribulation points us to an expectation that God's going to be glorified. The frequency of trial birth pains in our life bring about a realization and a hope that, man, all this I'm going through, God's got something big in store. That God's not going to take you through a challenge or through a difficulty without bringing something awesome out of all this struggle. You see? (laughs) God didn't take Moses in the wilderness until he had a promised land in mind. The reason he had to go through the wilderness is because there was a hopeful destination in mind. All the tribulations that God takes you through is because there's something God has in mind for you to build up hope. This is what happens with trial. This is what happens with suffering. Every bit of suffering points us to the hope of the glory of God. And this is why the Bible says that tribulation will increase when the day of the Lord draws near. Now we, th- we think the tribulation will be a period of desperation and desolation on the earth. But that is the circumstance of the world. Let me tell you Christian, the tribulation for us will be a season of hopefulness. If trial and tribulation and persecution brings about hope in the life of the believer, let me tell you, the tribulation will be the most hopeful season in the period of Christianity the world has ever seen. So you're like, Pastor, we're going to be here in the tribulation? I don't know. And let me tell you, Schofield don't know the full answer either. And the dispensationalists and John MacArthur, they don't know. But all I can tell you is this. Be ready if that's the Lord's will. Because the, the, we are in the um, Western brand of Christianity. And the Western brand of Christianity has emphasized that the tribulation will be a, a period of increased suffering. When the Eastern brand of Christianity has been suffering for a thousand years. 
I mean, I mean, according to the Eastern Christianity, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Egypt, Libya, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, all these countries, they're in the tribulation, folks. Well, God won't let us go through the tribulation. He's letting them over there go through it. Why are we so special? So get that thought out of your head. Let me tell you, the tribulation will be a season of hopefulness. Amen? Every time I see in the media that the government is doing something to churches or restricting preachers or restricting chaplains in the military so they can no longer have freedom in what they say, it makes me more hopeful because I see the Bible is coming true before our very eyes. And the whole point of the Bible is that God is going to be glorified and we're going to live with him forever. So when I see these things, I'm like, yes, yes. It's, you know, I know it's real, but then you see it and you're like, it's, it's really real. You get a little excited. That should be the design. What the Bible says is continuing to come true. But secondly, as we see the frequency of those things increase, it means the day of the Lord is quickly approaching. And if we're afraid of the day of the Lord because, man, we, we haven't checked our items off of our bucket list and, you know, I haven't got to see Tahiti yet or so on and so forth. Let me tell you, friends, you don't have a realization yet of heaven. <laughs> if you're waiting for Jesus because Tahiti still has to get there, you, you're not aware of the beauty of Jesus. I mean, I mean, our expectation is that we're ready for Christ now. You see, the Lord is such a genius that he's designed the system of the saints to be that, that which should bring about darkness in your life actually brings about the opposite purpose. And the enemy is so stupid that when the enemy tries to flow, uh, throw affliction into the lives of the saints to thwart them, they, we actually become more aware of hope and there's an upward spiral of happiness and joy. See, the thing is, the enemy is trying to prevent your Christianity by throwing affliction on you, but the thing is, affliction is going to make you more persevere in the end. So it has the upward effect, the opposite effect on the saint. I was listening to a preacher this week. He said that his greatest employee is a guy named Percy. He said Percy stands for persecution. And when persecution comes around, the ministry becomes more blessed. He says when persecution comes around the ministry because of the doctrines of grace or whatever it is they're preaching, that when persecution comes around, they start to see God work in more powerful ways. But we're afraid of persecution. We shouldn't be afraid of it. Here in America, our definition of blessedness is backwards. We define blessedness as comfort or lack of affliction. This is nowhere in the New Testament. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say that there will be a lack of affliction in your life. When you read the New Testament and you read Christianity and you listen to a gospel preacher who says, listen, come to Jesus because it's going to be rabbit trails and, and unicorns. That's a bunch of hogwash. It's going to be affliction. But it's the affliction that's going to bring about hope in your life, not the comfort. 
It's not going to be all the, all the shiny and flashy things that bring about blessedness in your life. It'll be affliction and persecution. This is why all of the uh, 12 disciples, save John who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, they all died being a martyr. Why? Because they were the most blessed. And guess who gets front row in heaven? The martyrs. Because they have the greatest <laughs> blessed experience. Do y'all want to be on front row? You want to be in a nosebleed section? I want to get in action. I mean, to be honest with you, it don't matter. You know, I'm, it don't matter. But I'm not here just so I can get in. You see? I don't want to just get in. Praise the Lord, I want to bust through. And tick the devil off while I'm doing it. You see... The prosperity gospel says God wants to bless you and remove obstacles from you. This does not bring about hope. When comfort comes into our life, it brings about stagnation. When comfort comes to our life, it brings about laziness and mediocrity. If you want to go spiritually weak, then pray for comfort. But if you want to go spiritually strong, then understand adversity is coming your way. Understand, like we said last week, there's no shortcut to faith. There's no MLN mobile multi-level marketing pyramid campaign that's going to bring you a quick shortcut to the system God has designed for you. Man, this is pretty good stuff tonight. I like the stuff people don't say amen on. I'm not saying it's not possible to be intimately in love with God right now. I'm not saying that all these things in your life aren't necessary or are necessary. But I am saying that if we know that suffering brings about God's hope in our life, then let's approach it, as the Bible says, with joy. We don't have to be weary of suffering. We can rejoice in the midst of suffering. We can enjoy it and look forward to it. And when suffering comes because our head is founded in the knowledge of the glory of God, then we can say in the midst of the trial, God's going to get the glory, devil. God's going to get the glory. So we know that because God will get the glory, our head is founded in hope. We can rejoice in the trial. But the only problem is we can't see hope. That's why it's troublesome. Hope is not tangible. You can't measure it, and science can't define it. Therefore, most people are weary of having something they can't see. This is why it's hard in the life of a believer, because we want things we can see. We want Christianity we can touch. We want our Christian license plates and bumper stickers and Christian t-shirts and our Christian hats. And man, as long as I got the tangible stuff, then I think I'm okay. But it's not the tangible stuff that's going to help us. Most people are weary of having something they can't see, but they want something they can see. And what they can see is their works. That's why they want the law. That's why if they can see how to be better than the next brother next to them to improve their chances of getting into heaven, they'll take it. If I can get a works-based righteousness Christianity, which means I can see my works, I can see my Sunday school attendance, I can see how much I'm serving God, if that defines my better chances of getting to heaven, then guess what? I'm going to take that, brother, because I can't see hope. 
This is why the preaching of the law is so popular in churches because man wants something tangible that he can't control. I can control my works. I can be better than the next guy. But this doesn't lead me to hope. But the message of hope and the ability to walk in that promise and in that covenant is not based on the work of man, but it's established on the work of God. Therefore, hope is based on grace. See, hope, what we can't see, is not based on our works, which we can see. I don't hope in the glory of God. I don't hope in my situation because I'm a good person. I hope because God is a good God. And he saved me, not me saved myself. So my hope is based upon my feet, which are established in grace. When my feet are firmly footed, then my head can be firmly directed. You see... The message of the gospel is based on grace. And grace is the work of God, not of you. Grace says that you have no chance of getting to the heaven. And what Christ did on the cross for you is what ensures you of getting to heaven, not you. It's not you who ensures that you can get to heaven. It's Christ who assured your salvation. It's his satisfaction of God's pleasure that assures your chance into heaven, not what we can add to it. If we add grace, put a little law, we get law. If you add 99% grace plus a little law, you still get law. That's why the gospel is all God's grace. Let me tell you something. I, I'm, I'm not a Joel Osteen fan, but I saw a video this week that made me angry. He told his church they shouldn't eat bacon. I'm serious. Or shrimp. He says pigs are unclean and they eat garbage. Let me tell you. There's a difference... In, in what we call the Levitical laws that were written for two million Jews living in, in community together. If one Jew got a viral outbreak, it would spread through the whole camp. That's why they couldn't eat pigs, because guess what? Their pigs would be eating garbage and dead chickens and, and all kind of junk. Do you think pigs are eating dead chickens now? No, they're eating in a, in a facility where they're raising healthy pigs, getting immunizations. Listen, I praise the Lord that in 2013, 14, we got fresh bacon. Amen? But that made me mad. I'm like, that's, that's legalistic Pharisee type stuff. Because the New Testament says the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is not about what we can't do. What we can do is about what he already has done. And that's what engrafts us in. That doesn't give us a license to sin. It gives us a license to worship. Grace says that you'll never look good to God because of your actions. And that what you do does not improve God's favor in your life. This is why our feet must be rooted, firmly planted in grace. So that our head can be founded in hope. Hope cometh from the mind and faith comes from the heart. 
Faith is not based on science, but it is based on confidence. And last time I checked, you can't put God in a test tube. You can't measure God, but you can see that 2,000 years ago, a man named Christ hung on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the world. And it is the most verifiable, historically, manuscript evidence that we have in the history of the world. There's more manuscripts that testify to the death and resurrection of Christ than there are manuscripts of anything. It is historical. So I'm not basing Jesus on science. I'm basing it on confidence. That listen, there really was a man named Christ and he really did hang on the cross and he really did come out of the dead because 11 disciples didn't go around getting their heads chopped off because Jesus really wasn't died. They believed it to the death. Faith is based on confidence, but you can't measure God. This is why the postmodern, new age, feather-wearing, scientific atheists don't like God. Don't worry if you got feathers on. I'm making a point. They can't put God into a formula. They'd rather have rocks and feathers that they can see than a real God that they can't see. And they say we're crazy. You're wearing a rock around your neck to bring peace and prosperity to you. They can't see God. But here's the thing. We can't see hope. So in a way, some of us become like some of them because we stay away from that which is best for us, that which we can't see and measure, which is hope. We stay away from that because we can't see it. We can't measure it. And a lot of times, let me tell you, you can't feel it. And Christianity is not based on your feeling. It's not based on the religious, working up the religious charismatic experience. Your Christian life is not based upon the experience of God. As a feeling. It's based on the knowledge of God as a relationship. Because let me tell you, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm not necessarily going to feel like it's time to be in love with my wife. That's not what marriage is every day. Marriage is not a feeling. This is why the world is so messed up because they think, oh, I'm falling in love with you. No, you're having a release of of hormones in your brain that make you crazy. (laughs) They say the brain works all the way during your life until you fall in love. And then it ceases to work. What happens is we base our relationship on a feeling. People do the same thing with God. I had a lady message me about a year ago. She said, I just don't feel on fire for God anymore. Well, I said, you better find it, so you're going to feel a fire eventually. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> But here's the deal. Here's the deal. Hope is not based on something yet to happen. Hope is not based on something we have yet to see. You see, we are not Christians who are sitting around at the restaurant waiting for the waiter to come fill up our glass. You get to the restaurant, there's a glass there, but no tea 
or no water. And you have, to, you have a hope that the waitress is going to come. And so you sit there with an empty glass. And you have a hope based on something that will happen. That's not the hope that we have. Our hope is not based on something that is yet to happen, but something that has happened. And here's what I want you to talk about. Your hopefulness, according to the scripture, is based on... Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given us. So your hope is based on the fact that the Holy Spirit lives within you and has a love of God that God has placed within you. Let me tell you what. If you love God, it's not because of you. It's because God has put his spirit in you and God loves himself. That's the Trinity. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Spirit. Let me tell you, the Holy Spirit loves God. So your love for God is based on God's work. So here's what I say. If I do love God, and yes, there's a love there, then it's because God's spirit's within me. And if God's spirit's within me, then God did something in my life and he's going to finish it. The love of God that has been put into your heart is not your love for God. The love of God that is in you is not your love for God. It is God's love for God that he put within you. See, it doesn't say that God awakened the love within our heart. It says God, the love of God has been poured into our heart. God poured his own love into you and me. So that in the end, it's him who gets the glory. Because if we were left to our own devices, we would be bad lovers. We would be lovers who are constantly, like Israel, going back and forth, back and forth. But we are a new creation in Christ. We're not Jacob. We're not Israel. We are Christ in him before the foundation of the world. And this is the purpose of the Holy Spirit, like I said two Sundays ago. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is not to fire you up and get you going, but to reveal that which God has placed in you and that God has decreed before the existence of the universe that you were created for his purpose. That's the function of the Holy Spirit. You are Christian because of God's love for you, not because of your love for God. I know that hurts your feelings for some of you, but this is the gospel. That while we were sinners... Christ died for us. That he chose us before we chose him. And it is the love of God within us via the Holy Spirit that testifies about the love of the Father for us. So here's the hope of God. That God loved me before I loved him. That his love is not conditional. Therefore, if I fail tomorrow, he's not going to love me less. And if I do the best tomorrow, he's not going to love me more. So my motivation for serving and worshiping him is not to prevent his wrath or to satisfy his pleasure. My motivation is that I'm already seated with Christ and I can be glorified in all I say and do because for his glory, that's why I was created. You see, Jesus is, God is already satisfied with me because of the work of Christ. Uh, we always say, is God satisfied with me today? Can I go into God's presence? Is he satisfied? God is satisfied because of Christ, not you. If it was up to us, God would never be satisfied because we would never be enough. We would never be enough. 
The whole function of the law was to show you you can't be enough. What did Jesus say was the essence of the law? What was the whole conclusion for the law? To love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So let me tell you this. The purpose of the law was to show you you can't. You can't love God enough. You can't love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's why he put his love in you. This is the new covenant. If it was possible for me to love God enough, I would have been able to do it under the old covenant, but he knew we can't. That was the function of the law to show us we can't, so he gave us his love and purchased a bride for himself. And here's another good morsel for you. You're the bride of the Christ, not the fiance of Christ. We are already married, betrothed with the lamb. We are already unified in Jesus. That's why my hope is not waiting to get to heaven. My hope is that Jesus is already in me. I'm in him. I'm unified with God, engrafted into the fellowship of God. What more can you want? I mean, good gracious. So if it's the work of Christ that attaches me to the vine, then it's not the work of man that can detach me from the vine. Because the vine is Christ, and being rooted in Christ means being rooted in his grace. And so when we are firmly planted in that grace with our feet, we know that's what attaches us, then our head can be confident. We can walk around no matter what trial we're going through with a confident expectation that, you know what, today may really stink, but God's going to be glorified. I may have failed last week, but my performance never did anything for my merit anyway. So it doesn't demerit me in the eyes of God. So even if I failed, God's going to teach me something and pick me back up, make me stronger, so I can serve him today. Our confidence is based on his grace. And because of his grace, our confidence is about his hope And his hope is confirmed by his love within us. So the only question is, if there's no love of God, then we have nothing. That's the only question we have. Is there love for God? If there is love for God, that's confirmation. If there's not love for God, time to get saved. Have a come to Jesus meeting. In your bedroom tonight, get on your hands and knees. Say, God, I cry out to you. Abba, Father, I'm a sinner. I believe you died and purchased me with your blood. And come into that knowledge of salvation. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit, which confirms in us the covenant of your grace and truth. That based on the performance of Jesus Christ, we are engrafted into that heavenly vine. Rooted in his grace, founded in, in his love. And Lord, this leads us to walk through with the confident expectation of your glory in the midst of all you're doing in our life. Even when we fail, even when we succeed, it does not add, it does not track from your glory because you are sovereignly ordaining everything in the universe to a pinnacle end, which is that the bride of Christ and Christ are unified forever and ever and ever and that every tongue will bow at the name of Jesus saying, what a mighty God, what a mighty God you are. So God, we give you glory in this place. Help us to be victorious in our daily life. We ask this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.